0: Romans 12. It says to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. Because it actually teaches me the virtue of (laughs) (laughs) long-suffering. Which we all need a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) It takes so long uh, to to develop projects in in data centres, as you know, from permitting to construction, it takes years. Uh, And this has taught me to be patient and take a long-term view. (laughs)
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Great Business Minds podcast, the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure. I'm your host, Jean-Marc Lima, and I use my experience as a digital infrastructure journalist to dig deep into business issues, but also get to know those who build our digital world. At Great Business Minds, we would like to thank our sponsor for this year, GBM is now brought to you by Prescott & Co., a leading award-winning City of London law firm internationally recognized for its expertise in the digital infrastructure industry, as well as the telecoms and tech sector work more broadly. Whatever your legal or regulatory needs are, including outer space, Prescott & Co. can support you, so they feel free to reach out to them at www.prescott.com. And on this week's episode, we are joined by a global data center senior executive with over 20 years of experience in real estate, corporate finance and operations. Kokshai Hong joined real estate private equity fund management firm, Core Capital, in 2021 as managing director and head of IDC Platform for Asia. He spearheads internet data center platform investments for Go Capital Partners outside of the China region. Prior to joining Go Capital Partners, Kokshai worked in the capital group of companies for 10 years in a number of roles, including being a senior vice president, and since 2014 as the head of strategy and global investments at Capital Data Centers, a regional data center owner and operator with over 25 facilities spread across the APAC and European regions. He has international experience in data centers, telecom and submarine cable development projects and a strong track record in fundraising, growing data center businesses in key markets in Asia and Europe and leading investment teams to acquire data centers in Australia, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, Hong Kong, Germany and in the Netherlands. Kokshai received his Bachelor of Accounting degree from the Niyang Technological University in Singapore and graduated from the Sloan Fellows Program at Stanford University with a Master of Science in Management from the Graduate School of Business in 2007. He is a Chartered Accountant in Singapore and a Fellow of CPA Australia and a member of the Institute of Singapore Chartered Accountants and CPA Australia. So Kokshai, it's a pleasure speaking to you. Um, I think we're very much excited to see you in a few days in, in Jakarta. Um, for our first edition of the, the, the Asia Finance Forum in Asia. Um, you've been a big supporter of the event, and we are very much thankful for that. But uh, whilst the event is going to very much focus on what's happening in Asia, we also wanted to, to discover more about you uh, and your journey throughout the, the, the throughout the years in this sector, uh, and especially within Southeast Asia. So, But before we jump into the markets, let's talk about you. So how did you start, um, and how did you become involved with the data center space in the first place?
0: Right, oh, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. First of all, Joao, thank you very much for inviting me to speak today. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, and uh, to answer your question, uh, how did I actually get involved in the sector? It's actually almost by accident, actually. Uh, it's funny how things turn out, uh, how things turn out to be absolutely unplanned from when you first started, when you graduated. You know, I was actually trained as a professional accountant, you know, and my first job was actually as a tax consultant at a, one of the big accounting firms. I remember my first business card had no email address, you know, or, or no mobile number, you know. And my clients was busy telling me, uh, it's better to make money and pay taxes than actually have to save <laughs> taxes. <laughs> that was what got me as a young person thinking about uh, getting into business as opposed to being an advisor. And this was in the mid nineties. Uh, when the telecom industry in Singapore was undergoing tremendous reform, uh, and so M1 was getting its first mobile license, Startup was getting its full license. Uh, I was then headhunted to to help grow uh, Singtel's overseas business. As uh, Singtel was the incumbent, it was it was also losing its monopoly as well. You know, uh, it was exciting times. You know, uh, uh, GPRS. Uh, I'm not sure if people remember that anymore. Was being launched, uh, there were talks about 3G. Uh, I had lots of opportunities to, to really immerse myself uh, uh, because Singtel was really getting busy, getting involved in all these mm-hmm. technologies. As a young person, uh, it was tremendously exciting. Uh, I helped to build submarine cables uh, for Singtel um, and had an opportunity to even work in Australia. When when Singtel acquired Optus uh, back in two thousand and two, you know, mm. that my career in Singtel lasted about thirteen years, and then after that, I was I joined Capo to be the, mm. the, the chief investment officer or the head of investments for his data center business. You know, that that was another exciting journey for me, as well as as you know during the last five to eight years, data centers as an asset class became firmly entrenched uh, as a viable and exciting asset class for for alternative investors. But it was during my time in Singtel that I I had the time and the opportunity to really get involved in uh, all of these asset classes uh, as well.
1: Yeah, it, it's definitely attracted the, the, the world's attention. Um, and I'll say even COVID speeded that up a little bit as the other parts of real estate fell down a little bit um, around offices and residencies. <laughs> um, I was going to say, because you were mentioning, of course, in the old days, being younger and all these sort of things, how would you compare the entry to markets for by, by young people? Was it easy to get into the market back then? Um, And I guess in this case, the, let's say the TMT market, because it wasn't really there since the market in the 90s. But was it easy to get into the market then? Or you think it's easy to get into the market now? Because we do have a bit of a short, like we, we don't have enough talent coming into the sector these days.
0: No, I think it's just as easy to get into the market then as it is now. I think uh, uh, back during my time, I think that it was harder to get notice of opportunities. Mm. at the time. I mean, that, that back in the nineties, there was no internet. Yeah, you really had to, to buy the newspaper or really work very hard to be aware of opportunities uh, to get involved, you know. But yeah, at the same time, there were a lot less companies that was involved in the space. You know, it, it was pretty much Singtel back in the 90s uh, and, and there were no other, compet- no other big telcos or operators in mm. the 90s. Look at today, there's a lot more competition for there was a, lot, a lot of people wanting to get involved in the center industry. However, there's also a lot of, of operators, uh, developers, investors that also want to get involved in the space. Uh, and yet, through social media and other channels, people get wind of such opportunities a lot quicker uh, as well. So, I do believe it kind of levels up uh, to a certain extent. A large part of it depends on the person's uh, aptitude uh, to be flexible. Uh, and not be fixated about any particular role, uh, so long as they get a foot into the door, into the industry. Uh, and there'll be lots of opportunities to pivot, make new friends uh, and take on additional roles mm-hmm. in the future. I mean, my, my own career has been a good example where uh, my role as an investment person wasn't what I had intended to be when I first started out. Uh, I was my, my my career ambition was to be a partner in accounting firm and and, and <laughs> just slightly different <laughs> I,
1: and I never got
0: close anywhere close to being that role but rather a turn of events uh change of i mean changes in the macro environment just having the ability to network and make new friends and staying open, uh has that has had all of that has led me to where i am today
1: hmm. Absolutely. I think open mindedness and willingness to kind of navigate things as they come towards you. Um is probably the best mindset to have when you jump into this sector. Uh, because again, it's still being formed. It's not fully formed. It's not a it's not a mature sector like the the, the office real estate, hospitality, um, some of the bigger financial sides of the world. It's still very much being developed. So there's so many new roles coming into, into the table um every time. So and we need new brains to fill those roles. Uh, and it is about adaptability. Um, I, I was going to as well ask you, and especially around adaptability, because one thing that's very important in everyone's journey, it's uh, it's that one figure that kind of inspires you and mentors you um, into what you become today and how you think. So who's been that person for you? Who's been that someone that um, was your mentor, someone that you looked up to um, and you learned well, at least one or two things out of? <laughs>
0: Uh, there's been many people that that uh, I learned from uh, in my career, you know, broadly speaking, that I guess my bosses both Sinter and Keppel. I have a lot to credit them for, for a lot of the financial skills mm-hmm. and discipline uh, that, that um, has trained me to be where I am today. Uh, but I guess if I had to credit one person, it would actually be my dad. Uh, you know, uh, although he's passed away now, I always remember him and with the values of truth, hard work, uh, being a lawyer and fiduciary to what you're doing. Because my, my, my dad was an accountant uh, for over 30 years in the same company. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and I guess that has rubbed off a little bit on me because I, uh, I've i spent many years in the various companies that I've worked for. Hmm. Yeah,
1: Which again, especially with younger generations, it's something quite rare um, these days. Uh, I think anyone that breaks the two year <laughs> the two year thresholds, <laughs> that's that's quite a long time. <laughs> do you do you actually do you see that within the, the space arena, not just within Go, but also within other companies that you deal with. You, you, when you speak to friends in other companies? Is that something that comes up sometimes? Like how the the the, the amount of time that people spend in the companies? Is that is that even an issue? Is that just, just a natural thing of the 21st
0: century? Um I guess, I guess it's, it's, it's an evolution of the amount of information that's been directed at any person right. in time, you know, because through LinkedIn, through all kinds of other channels, people get bombarded with tons of information, and and it does tend to tempt people uh, from yeah. time to time uh, about leaving, you know. I, I don't think people are less loyal than mm. If that's, if that's what you mean people are not less loyal than they were uh, during our time and we tend to stay longer yeah. uh, they, they, they tend to be more uh, vocal and, and talk I would say even more risk, risk seeking risk, ability to take risks is higher yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, I've, had, I've had friends who, who move from one job to another because they're willing to try new things uh, and not necessarily of being disloyal to, to previous employers. Yeah. Things just move a
1: lot faster. I mean, it's, it's like we were saying, in all days, people go and buy a newspaper to apply for a job. Now the job comes to you through 10,000 different means of information. <laughs> it's, it's, it is a lot easier. I mean, there's things I can't even imagine having to do when looking for a job. Uh, yes. But then when we look into into you doing business, for example, one question that I'd like to ask everyone is what's something that's non-negotiable to you? What's something that you're not open hand off uh, when you go out into, into a company? This can be any company, just business in general, but what's the one thing that you will not compromise on and say like, well, if this is not like this, then I'm sorry, but I can't be part of this project.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of my time is spent making deals, uh, which mm-hmm. means it's buying real estate or investing in companies or working with various partners. Um, the one thing that I will not tolerate uh, is I guess lack of honesty or, or lack of integrity in business dealings. Uh, I, I can tolerate mistakes, I can tolerate lack of judgment or because we all go into this together with eyes open. But if, in, in business, if you find that the partner is it's not doing the right thing intentionally you know then i guess it's the or they were all we found that it was misleading uh, us mm-hmm. in another then that cannot be tolerated it would, would effectively mean that the whole partnership or relationship would need to be restructured yeah mm-hmm.
1: absolutely it, it always takes us back to trust um being able to trust the other person because if you're if you're not working towards the same direction um then things won't work out when you both reach the end line if you reach the end line at the same time so that, that's why it's important um uh, balance um trust and honesty as you mentioned um Absolutely. and i'll bring back the word adaptability so adaptability honesty um and, and trust really all come hand in hand uh, and integrity of course i mean that is probably the most important thing one of the most important things as well yeah um, and then I was going to ask as well, so in terms of, because we all make mistakes, that's part of life when you say like, oh, I can also quote me mistakes. What's well, been once that you've made a mistake, they were like, oh, oh God, this didn't go according to plan. But then I think the other important aspect to it is like, how did you, first, what did you learn from it? And secondly, how did you transform that into a positive Um, to, to uh, after whatever happens? So give us just an example, an example of when things didn't go according to plan. And then, how yeah. did you shift that from not going according to plan to all right? Now we're back on track.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess there were obviously deals that were good, and there were obviously deals that, that were less good. Part of life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, part of life, right? Uh, and when we do uh work-class analysis of actually what happened, you know, uh, it's actually due to what I would call uh, excessive exuberance. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we, we've all suffer from that at some
1: point.
0: <laughs> it's either exuberance in making of your assumptions or exuberance in believing your business partner in, in what they say. Uh and, you know, and, and 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 very often uh there's always an element of optimism when you need to do deals because there's always a bit of uncertainty, you know. But there's no running away from doing proper due diligence uh in, in, in all of your work. You know, and actually have uh, a tough negotiations with with your partners. Uh, because uh, everybody hopes for the best, but we all need to plan for the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to this, so so the learning lessons I've taken is really to be to be uh, I guess very pessimistic in how we we, we plan for business outcomes uh, mm. because. Uh, you really don't want this to happen but like we, we just need to be prepared for that eventuality mm-hmm. it has happened you know and also taking a really hard look at uh, the business case assumptions you know and trying your best to marry it with the capabilities of the operator uh, of the partner that you're working with.
1: Yeah no, I mean it all comes back to, to planning and having a plan A, B and C but um, I, I think what you said about the expectations um I mean, I don't know about your world, but what we've seen a lot in our world is that a lot of people throw numbers at the table, um, but we know fundamentals. That there's been no actual planning, no other lesions behind those numbers. So when you look at numbers and you get excited, but then you step back and be like, well, actually, how are you going to achieve that? Th- does that happen a lot in your field as well, or, or are people yes. a bit more still the same? Yeah.
0: Yes, pretty much so. Another related uh, uh, side effect of 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 exuberance is also the fact that we tend to let um, bad deals um, live on for too long.
1: Mm.
0: You know, it's again uh, applying ir- irrational exuberance when a deal is, is is probably better off dead. It yeah. tends to go on. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: but I guess we, that's a very human being behavior. <laughs> yeah.
0: And then it, it sucks the energy out of the teams and uh, the people yeah. running when we are actually better off, um, off selling it uh and then and then doing something else without time and to find a Mm. better deal you know Mm. yeah so So is it correct there is a very fine line that that separates this uh whether we save a deal or whether we 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 just we just kill it you know it's something that i'm still practicing uh uh, uh, every day to find the right balance
1: yeah Is is it correct to kind of say that then as i guess as a leader someone that guides the team it's important to also know when to when to give up on something. Um, and then actually, when. so once you reach that decision as well, how do you go back to the team and tell them, look, you know what, this is not really going to go according to to plan. How do you get the message across um, into a team? And especially younger people, because we know people get a bit more um, impacted by these sort of decisions because they might be working on something for six months, 12 months, 24 months. And then someone's sounds like, well, you know what? It's not gonna work. So you need to rethink the whole thing. How so one, how do you build that knowledge just to say like it's not gonna work anymore? And then how do you transfer how do you transmit um to the troops <laughs> that it's not gonna go ahead anymore? <laughs> uh,
0: I, I guess what we do or what I do is that we have to really set objectives and timelines uh when we identify a problem with a project. Uh, uh, and really set milestones to, to manage progress to that. It's because it's very easy for people to get emotionally involved uh, and keep, keep on going uh, no matter what happens. You know? um, for, for people like us, you know, uh, time is as valuable as money. Uh, the time, if we spend too much time rescuing a project, it would mean less time on another project uh, as well. And I always, uh, take care to remind uh, our team uh, of um, compromise all the sacrifices and trade offs uh, we we make in our in our work as well. You know? So so the so the key is really to manage each project based on very clear uh, objectives uh, and to keep having regular check ins with the team members on such problems. You know? mm. but yeah, at the same time. Uh, recognizing a lot of progress that is being made by the various team members and being willing to recognize uh, and recognize the contributions made by the team members, even if ultimately the decision is made to 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 sell the project.
1: yeah, yeah. I think it circles back to that notion of transparency adaptability um, that we that we've already mentioned um, mm-hmm. as as well. and then on, on on that sense as well, and I think you might have actually, already sort of answered the question but how would you sort of foster then a culture of innovation and adaptability within the team um I guess just a little bit beyond of what you just said about the, the clear goals and all those sort of things how would how you bring everyone together um to to drive the same the same to, to be in the same boat not drive the same boat because we don't want 10 people driving the same boat <laughs> at the same time there's only one helm but how would you get everyone on the same boat um to, to go in the, on the same journey there, there we go it's the journey not the actual driving. <laughs>
0: So, uh, one of the things I do is to deliberately intentionally create a very diverse team. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 my team at Gore actually comprises of people from over five countries. Uh, right mm-hmm. now, we have a small team, we are less than 10 people, but they come from over five countries. Wow. Uh, and each of them uh, brings in a specific skill set, uh, because as we all know, the data center industry sits at the intersection of many different disciplines from, from real estate to mechanical and electrical engineering to fiber and, and, and so on. Mm. And so so the people in my team all represent a specific specialist skill set. And, and my job is to, is, is I guess, keep everybody from fighting each other, but rather fight the problem together. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's just taking care of the children. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it, it, it's really having a, a very collaborative consensus uh, way, way of working. And, and we are spread across multiple countries as well. So mm-hmm. the key is to coordinate uh, and create a culture where people are free to speak up without any fear of being criticized. Uh, it's a very democratic environment in the team. You know? And, and uh, another thing that I personally enjoy working or try to create is uh, I want to work with people that's younger than me. And uh, uh, I find there's a lot of energy uh, working with younger people. Uh, they bring a lot of new ideas. Uh, and there are new, a lot of new ways to approaching problems uh, as well. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I use humor in the office uh, quite a lot. Uh, I, I like to laugh at myself. the best way to take life (laughs) because it then creates a a safe environment at work Uh, if the boss can laugh himself or make jokes for himself yeah then then, uh it creates a a safer environment Uh,
1: yeah Yeah. i think what you said does go in line um with with what should happen unfortunately doesn't happen as much but it's a diversity of thought um and listen to young people as well i mean we all know that life experience is very valuable uh, but sometimes the views of problems when looked at a different prism from a different angle um the solutions that sometimes younger people have which might be more simplistic than the ones we think um because we might overthink something because we've gone through a lot of different options and we're just overthinking it then you get the person just saying one thing is like oh actually that's not a bad idea that's just a good idea <laughs> it's it sounds simple but it is a good idea <laughs> and that's probably what, what we need it's it's about creating that culture of um, diversity of thoughts and then and giving people a stage to to speak um yes. and, and I think that's why what, what sometimes you see in some companies that people don't get that uh, and then when they speak they might go down a, a rabbit hole um where they're not treated um, as they should so I think to, developing that kind of culture where people can do that I think that's there's, there's very it's not only clever, but it's very good for their own personal development, not just business development, but even personal development. Um, And then Koksha, so before we move into the next part of the conversation, more about the market itself, my last question within this first part, um, it's really about, well, it's not really about this, what's been the worst and the best advice um, you've ever received throughout your career? Um, And when I say career, I mean, since you were born, let's let's put it that way, like (laughs) throughout the years, what's been the best and the worst advice um, you've received?
0: Uh, well, I received a lot of advice. Um, <laughs> so, if you had, if I had to rank it, the, the worst advice I ever received was from uh, some previous CEOs that I work with that would say, uh, "Trust me, mm. uh, without providing, <laughs> without providing yeah, says that. Yeah, so that really worries me. Yeah,
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. When you have to say that, <laughs> trust. You don't ask for trust. You show that you can be trusted.
0: <laughs> And uh, the best advice that I received was 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 uh, when I was at well, when I was at Singtel, you know, when hmm. the previous CFOs would tell me, uh, "There's no need to make a decision that quickly," uh, you know, because hmm. sometimes when we face a problem, yeah. we we to just jump into it, roll up our sleeves, you know, and then get cracking, you know. Yeah. So. Uh, that applies not only to making decisions, but also to replying to emails, uh, communications, so because we we tend to be emotional or, or rash and once mm. should reply. You know. So my mentor mm. would say, it's probably good to just hold it off for a day or two. You know, sometimes the problem will solve itself when, when new information comes in. You know, and, and very often, I, I often thank myself for not, for not responding immediately to a, a difficult situation or difficult email, but give it a day or two for, and sometimes the problem does go away. Yeah. Or someone does step in and solve the problem for me.
1: No, but what, what you're saying, it's, um, I was gonna say it's true. It, it is true, but it, it is reality. Stepping, knowing when to sometimes just step back and just allowing time to, time, time, um because that time is the biggest illa for everything um and then when it comes to business we know that we we, especially in this market because everything is shifting so quickly um and there's something new every week it's so easy to fall into that trap of like right let's just reply um and then it's as you said sometimes you do get angry so sometimes the best thing to do is just to step back and not reply um right away which i think is something that comes with time um people will learn after following a few times they will learn that sometimes best not reply <laughs> um but i like that like we, there's no need to make a decision that quickly um i think i think that's very true because and i think it might go slightly against what we just said about the, the the market moving so fast and things are happening so fast but sometimes this taking just a few days a week to think about something through think something through um, that's that, that's fine, because when we talk about speed, we're not talking about things that would take six months to decide. Um, we, we're talking about sometimes just really just giving it a little bit of a, a thought um, before agreeing to something or before pursuing something else. So I, I, I like that, actually. Um, and yeah, it's a fast-moving industry, but we still have time to think. Um, I think that's, that's a good message. Uh, so that, well, okay, So and then, Koksha, so we move away now from your personal journey and your personal views into the market itself. So I thought before we jump into what Go is doing and all that, um, if you just want to paint a picture of what's happening in Asia, especially within the Asian region uh, in Southeast Asia, what's, I mean, what's happening in the market right now? and What kind of predictions have you got for the the next five, 10 years? Uh, And I mean, predictions are worth where they are because again, things shift so quickly. What we is going to happen in two years probably is going to happen next month but what's your just just paint a picture of what's happening in the market and what's to come in the next in the next five ten years All
0: right thanks so I, I do believe strongly that asia is actually the last frontier which uh, for data center demand uh and it's going to represent a huge amount of growth and opportunities in the next five to ten years simply because of 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 a few things. Uh, Of course, the the broad fundamentals. I mean, there's more people living in Asia than the rest of the world put together. And and yet it is a region that is hugely underserved uh, in many of the emerging markets. In some of the Southeast Asian markets, uh, there's not even an availability zone set up, by the hyperscalers. And yeah, at the same time, everybody is talking about AI, IoT, and all of the other uh, new applications that's coming in. So you can imagine that the rewards for being first in market in some of these countries would be very obvious for the right investor willing to come in and take a patient approach uh, to to developing data centers in these new markets. It is also a continent of contrast as well, you know, there's, there's a mix of mature markets like say Japan, Singapore and Australia and a very wide mix of emerging markets where where uh, only the few would dare to attract. Uh, I would say uh, uh, um, there are markets like Cambodia, for example, which are very wild, I would say wild very, very, uh, very new. Uh, yeah, markets that are rapidly maturing, like Philippines, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, and so on, where, where we all expect uh, large amounts of growth, you know, and, and, and of course, big markets uh, like India, Indonesia, you know, which a lot of investors have already come in, and, and yet we believe that there's still a lot more room to grow. You know? mm. From, from an investor's point of view, you can see there's a wide spectrum of returns and risk. Now it's very different from, from Europe or in the US where it's pretty much a common market uh, due to rich culture, as well as laws and regulations as well, right? So it calls for a, a differentiated approach to, to investing in Asia. Um, and, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Right, 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 right. The next, being Gauss, strategy, yeah, hmm.
1: yeah. but th- th- that's interesting. Do you still see a lot of people coming into Asia, for example, from the US mainly? And I guess from Europe, but mostly the US. Do you still see them coming into Asia and kind of just wanting to copy and paste the business models? Um, because I mean, w- we know that's not really how things work, that there's a different culture, there's a different mindset of how to do business. Um, it's you can't just copy and paste that it's in the business from Arizona and, and put it in, uh. Uh, in Indonesia, in Cambodia, Vietnam. But you still see a lot of people doing that? Are people
0: still kind of falling for that? Um, I think we're beginning to see a differentiation in the approach. Uh, there's still quite a number of big operators that uh, started uh, in the U.S. and then and then expanded to, to Asia. Um, there's a certain kind of merit in that because hmm. uh, it is still a market that is dominated by a few major customers, uh, namely the the hyperscale customers. And when these guys uh, come over from the US or Europe into Asia, uh, although they, they they may lack the local country knowledge, they do bring the customer uh, relationships with them. Uh, but they do mm-hmm. need to find local teams and local operators to work with them. Uh, to 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 be able to execute successfully in
1: that market. Okay. Yeah. okay. Well, and then speaking of uh, success stories, talk us through Go Capital. So, what are you guys doing at the moment? What what's what's the plan? Uh, what markets are you in? What's the expansions? Where, where are the expansions happening? Uh, because I mean, I I think they're happening a bit everywhere. It's actually sometimes hard to keep track of what's happening in Asia because everyone is everywhere. <laughs> it's like it's it is a market that's moving very fast. <laughs>
0: So so let me let me just do a quick introduction about Gore Capital and then I'll talk about our plans in in, in Asia for the data center business. So um, we're a private equity real estate firm uh, founded by the Gore family uh, back in 05. Uh, So we we traditionally started, we started first with the traditional real estate classes uh, like hotels. Uh, residential residential uh projects and so on, you know. And very quickly, we we over the life of seven seven funds, we are now managing about forty billion, or close to forty billion of capital, uh, under management, right? And our our journey in data centers uh began, I would say, a couple of years ago, when we invested in two operators uh in China, Centrin and tinker um, I joined the firm slightly over two years ago, with a with a mandate of growing deals as a platform outside of China. And after two years, uh, we have uh, two we have projects in five countries, uh, in Asia, managing over two hundred megawatts of development. Uh, our approach to um, acquiring projects in Asia, we're pretty, pretty flexible we're open to acquiring the real estate directly, Mm -hmm. and we're also equally open to acquiring stakes in operators and platforms, Mm -hmm. which has underlying real estate, which has underlying deals and assets as part of this portfolio. Mm -hmm. We we like to back uh, operators which has deep local knowledge, uh, and then what we do is we we support them with capital and relationships uh, with the key accounts. And we are in the midst of building up an ecosystem of operators uh, in the Asian region. Uh, and and, hope for, and in the future, we do want the various operators to start working with each other.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, sounds, it sounds more challenging than it is <laughs> getting people to work with each other. I can imagine. I, I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> you can deal with that. Uh, I was going to say, um, is there like a dream of where where you want to go? So in terms of uh, portfolio, because you're saying you've got about 200 megawatts now. Is that the goal to reach like one gigawatt or the goal is just to reach as far as it can go over the next five, 10 years, whatever, whatever comes, comes, whatever will be, will be uh, almost a bit like that. But Or, or do you guys have a, a number in mind? So like, we want to achieve this much um, in terms of power, in terms of portfolio size.
0: We don't have a, a fixed number in mind. Uh, uh, we do want to create the the best platform though. Uh, I guess it's 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 uh, people's opinion on whether the best platform whether it's in terms of size or whether in terms of coverage or whether in terms of or profits or clients right yeah. uh, what we do have over a relatively short period of time is that we have projects in all the key Asian locations, namely uh, we have projects in Japan, Korea, vietnam malaysia and indonesia Uh, and we are hoping to deepen our presence in other key markets in the future uh, as well Um, these projects are in all the right locations uh, within the capital cities of each of those uh, those markets uh, with the exception of indonesia where our project is in patam uh, serving as a overflow platform
1: I was actually, that, that kind of segues into my next question. My next question is actually two questions because it's always two questions in one anyway. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, out of the portfolio that you've got now, what's the the, the destination, the location that you're most, most excited about? Um, and then beyond the locations that you're in, what's what's the one that you think, like, we need to get there as soon as possible? Um, if you can reveal what the location would be. like, So what's the one you're most excited about of where you already are? And then what's the one that's coming up or the one that you're not in at the moment that you feel like, oh, we need to get there. This is this is gonna be big. We need, we need to get there as soon as possible.
0: Yeah. So um, as you know, uh, real estate funds, we're, we're very sensitive to, to macro changes, so to high interest rate environments. And also, so as you know, it's been pretty challenging uh, the last uh, well, quite a bit of time due to the high interest rate environment. Uh, however, we do like Japan, uh, Japan is a market that that's been a focus to us. Uh, <laughs> we can, we continue to like Japan uh, very much. you know Japan is a key market for us uh, and also for the data center business we We had two we are building two data centers in West Tokyo right now you know and we're continually looking for more opportunities uh, in the future. As it relates to other markets, right? Um, um, we're kind of looking at adopting a two-prong two-prong strategy. So we're hoping to deepen our presence in the markets that we already have. Uh, uh, because several of our properties, uh, with either under construction, and those under construction have received certain levels of pre-commit. Uh, our projects in Korea are also filling up uh, pretty nicely. So we're hoping to add more projects uh, there as well. Um, other markets, I guess the key one, uh, which uh, is probably too big to know, will probably be India. There's uh, hmm. a market that we've always been interested to look at uh, you know, and continue to actually, uh, kind of explore quite closely in, in that area. Hmm.
1: Yeah, in, in, I mean, India is a very interesting um, Mark, I mean, it, it's a world in itself in terms of opportunities as well. Because when you start looking at Mumbai's and um, Delhi's, uh, Bangalore's and all that, I mean, it's even each each city is almost the size of a country. Um, if you compare it to to Europe and even some of the South South um, Southeast Asian countries uh, or capitals uh, within, you have so many just within one country. It really becomes uh, <laughs> a big task to, to break in. But uh, we'll, we'll look forward to seeing our capital, India, <laughs> at some point.
0: <laughs> um, you have to find the right deal and the, and the right path. Mm. Because um, India, despite all of its um, attractiveness, uh, is still a, a challenging country to execute in. Mm.
1: Yeah, it, it is one of those countries, and everyone says that, it's one of those countries you can't just jump in um on your own you need to find that local person that comes with you and uh it's not about holding hand but it's walking along you alongside you um yeah. to, to help build whatever whatever's going to be built um yeah. i was going to i was going to ask as well so in that in that case so how we're looking within the wider asian region uh and especially even looking at a place like india for example how does go capital differentiate itself from other platforms in the market um, and then, how, what's your thought process? How do you determine the level of investments that you're going to put towards a project?
0: Right. Uh, I'll take the first question first, right, which is how we differentiate ourselves from the competitors, right? So, uh, first and foremost, we're a state fund. Right? So, we, we believe that through our long standing relationships in several countries uh, with different partners and we're able to find uh, deals, uh, off-market deals, hopefully a bit quicker than Mm. than other people. Secondly, we take a multi-pronged approach to looking at investments. By that, we mean that we can take a direct position in real estate, so uh, or we can invest in operators, right? When it comes to buying real estate, we are pretty flexible as well. We can, we can, take, a, we can take a position through equities or through through mass positions. Uh, we're open to, to a building a uh, fully fitted data center or limiting it to just a power shell, you know, and, and, and entering into a, a lease arrangement with independent operator. You know, you know, um, or we can take an equity position. In, in, in a new platform, which has underlying real estate, right? right. And we, we are quite open to working with multiple operators you know, because we believe that Asia is pretty, pretty complex place to operate in, right? We, we believe that if an operator is successful in one country. It doesn't necessarily translate to success in another country. And that in itself provides some diversity and protection against any single uh, risk factor, uh, i.e. like a CEO leaving uh, or team management leaving because you actually have multiple teams uh, working together working with God, right? And this is what helps us to deploy capital a lot quicker as well, because you have many teams working with you uh, and not just one, and right? not just one. And this approach has helped us to to become friends with with many operators because they they don't see us competing, uh, especially if we're just providing the real estate and then the operator leases the the, the facility from us. And and the operators that we invest in, um, they they tend to be carving out a specific region uh, and and, and we try and minimize as much as possible any any conflicts between our various uh, platform relationships. Um,
1: yeah. that's very interesting i've actually never heard someone talking about the, the having the different operators different ceos um the, the diversity of logos within the portfolio as a way of um navigating through harder times So, if a ceo leaves and all that i never thought of that it's actually quite um, quite unique um i would say um and something that we don't we don't see it as much in europe i guess because it's very much just operator focus as opposed to uh, an overarching um, PE firm coming in and uh, taking over. We've seen a little bit with Digital, Real- Digital Bridge, um, but I think maybe within Asia we haven't seen as much. Uh, so that that's a very interesting approach. Um, I think the other approach that comes into mind as well. Now, now we're getting into the the, the, the hot topics of the year. Um, and I'm not going to go into sustainability right away. I'm going to start with AI because that's that's what everyone is talking about. I mean, what's your view of what's happening now? Um, and how are you? How's it going? How's your portfolio? Kind of approaching all this. I mean, what, what what's happening, especially what's happening in Asia with AI?
0: I think we're only at the beginning uh, of the uh, for 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 AI. Yeah, I think I think as I mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation, a lot of a lot of key markets in in Asia are still being catch up uh, uh, to the rest of the world. Uh, I I believe, for example, Europe and the US are probably ten over years ahead of Asia. When it comes to deploying digital infrastructure. Uh, For example, Amazon only announced their availability zones in in Malaysia and Thailand in in the last, very, only very recently. Hmm. So so they're still busy building out their bread and butter infrastructure uh, in, in some of these key markets. And I think AI only adds more and more pressure for hyperscalers to deploy as quickly as they can. Yeah. in, in these markets uh, so I think uh, this only provides uh, a lot of tailwinds for, for growth in these markets uh, that's why you see all these big announcements uh, by various operators investors just piling in I mean Johor has now overtaken many markets uh, in Asia just by the sheer number of projects that's been announced uh, uh in the last uh, uh, couple of couple of months or years, right? Hmm. And I guess, uh, what is God doing? Uh you know, I know. think obviously we 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 are growing, or rather we are developing projects in all of the key cities in this area, and we are taking a holistic approach, uh, to to acquiring land and working with partners. Um, to capitalise on these opportunities. We are also looking um, beyond data centres as well, looking at the underlying technology, looking at the key trends. Uh, We we think that access to power is going to be one of the key constraints uh, Mm -hmm. in this market as well. So for example, um, through a sister fund, uh, we have invested in, in an Australian Renewable energy supplier uh, that's producing close to two gigawatts of batteries capacity in, in Australia, right? Mm. So the company is called uh, GMR, that's short for Gold Mountain Renewables, uh, which is developing uh, battery storage and solar solar wind systems in, uh, parts, in various parts of Australia. Mm. So this is an example of how uh we're taking a holistic approach you know, to, to to meeting these requirements yeah. hmm. hmm.
1: okay be- before we jump into into the party i was going to take a step back and say because when you say for example the eu and us uh, europe sorry, not just the EU, but europe and the u.s uh, are sort of 10 years ahead um, of many locations across asia I mean, it might be 10 years ahead but asia is not going to take 10 years to catch up I, th- I think that's the beauty of this: is that the the, the building and the, the, the adoption is going so fast. It's not going to take a decade to reach, to, to, to even to overcome those ten years of uh, of a head starts. Is, is that correct?
0: Yeah, I guess when I meant ten years, I meant ten years in terms of how the industry in Europe and US has developed uh, hmm. uh, relative to 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 Asia. You know, you know, if you look at some of these Asian markets, they do not have any AZs uh hyperscalers have not set up any 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 presence um, the the power grids are still very regulated uh, so i it will take a bit of time you now for for asia to for those countries in asia to really catch up with the developments that's happening uh, in say the, the key european markets and, mm. 10 years was probably more of a figure of speech. Uh, yeah. that, no, no, it was, was, yeah. That, that you know, it's, it's, it's still a long way off. And this is where actually the opportunity arises as well. You know, if when, Even when these hyperscalers enter those markets, uh, uh, they're probably going to be looking for co location space as a quick way to enter the market quickly before they invest huge amounts of money to build their own facilities. And this is an opportunity for investors and operators to provide such facilities to them.
1: Yeah, I, it's it's still quite amazing that even though there are some challenges um, like you emissions, it's, it's still moving at this pace. So we can only imagine when things get a bit more lined up <laughs> with the rest of the world, especially on the energy front, how fast or how even faster uh, and bigger this is all going to grow because Asia will overcome um, the, the European and US markets. I mean, in the next decade, it will definitely have more more capacity. Um, than, than those markets, but uh, and speaking of capacity, you've already kind of mentioned you you alluded to some of the energy problems. I mean, energy is a massive topic in in the Western worlds, um, and especially in Europe. Unfortunately, because of the war in Ukraine as well, has become everyone's attention. Um, is is Asia as worried about energy as we are on this side of the planet? Um, and then I guess the other question is: Is there enough energy to to power everything? Do is there a lack of energy? Just give just paint a picture whether the energy conversation is within Asia uh, and I assume each country is going to have their own journey um, towards this and of course with all this comes the sustainability aspect to it so it's yeah just just give us a, a quick overview um, of where Asia is in their green uh, well in their power um, side of things and then their green journey.
0: <laughs> I, I, for one personally I certainly hope that there will be enough green energy to, to mm. power all of this new demand that's coming in. Uh, if not, the whole world will be, will be in trouble. Uh, so. <laughs> right. It is all about the power. <laughs> right. um, the, the challenge, again, uh, is that where the demand is consumed is usually not where the, 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 the renewable energy is being generated. Mm. I mean, think this is, this is the, the conundrum that we're facing. You know, there's lots of renewable energy in Vietnam, Australia, you know, and and some and other parts of of, of Asia. However, um, the demand is actually being consumed, say, in Singapore, for example. You know, uh, so the besides the, the generation besides the challenges of generating the energy, uh, a big part of the challenge is actually in transmission. You know, how do you actually get the the renewable energy from from where it's being made to where it's actually being consumed right after many years of negotiation uh, singapore is actually now made, is now undergoing trials to to import energy you know, from, from as far away as vietnam hmm. you know but it's going through all of the national grids of all the countries in between so say thailand and malaysia and, a lot <laughs> and, and so on right uh, you know so so it is getting there uh, uh, but it is going to take some time uh, uh, and i'm hopeful that all that various countries will continue to make to make progress uh, along the way you know and, and mm-hmm. solve, solve that problem
1: are there any new energy technologies and i guess some of them are not the new but it's about the adoption That people are excited about um, across the continent. I'm talking about things like, for example, like nuclear, hydrogen, um, other things that we don't even know about. What's the new front that people are opening up? Because we know there's a lot of like wind and solar energy um, being generated. Especially India is going to invest massively um, on solar farms with the Dani. But what's what's like the up and coming things that uh, that the continent is looking at? I think.
0: In Asia, everybody is probably going about the renewable journey in their own way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I guess the first question is what is a renewable energy? That's probably the first question we need to ask. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so uh, for example, in, in, in Vietnam, they're very big on, on solar. Uh, mm. Asia is solar as well. In Singapore, because it's very constrained, uh, we're taking a different approach and looking at hydrogen uh, from, from liquid ammonia. And we're going to be able to do uh, and all this uh, you know, Australia is also very big on, on renewables as well given the huge land mass uh that that they have you know no, i don't think when we're, we're accepting nuclear probably at this at this point in time uh, mm-hmm. in the west is probably gradually gaining acceptance um, At this uh, i guess probably a question of of the cost, uh, as well as the political considerations, uh, 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 as well, you know, given that it's it's quite a sensitive topic, and, and the nuclear fallout could probably cross into several other countries, uh, as, as well. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's it's quite a sensible topic here as well. I was just just curious <laughs> to see. Uh, and then my my last question for this, and then we'll, we'll close off with one final question. But the last question around this, the themes would be. So when God goes into looking to a a portfolio or a partner, do you have that thing where if they don't have a a green energy strategy, you just don't touch it? Or or is the market not there and be like, well, we need to work with this company to help them build their their strategy, their green um, strategy adoption? How how does it work in that sense? How much does sustainability weight when making a decision to to invest? Uh,
0: It does does play a big part because um, our investors are also insisting on... Mm of our projects um, having green features. Uh, mm. So it's very important that um, our partners adopt the same mindset. They do not necessarily need to have, uh, I guess, achievements or track record, but rather an ambition uh, or, or plan. You know, mm. And, and we, we work with our partners to see how we can achieve that plan together. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. We, it is one of the considerations, no, you know, but but uh, we also accept that it's, it's, it's a marathon and, and not a sprint.
1: It's, it's it's about the journey and how to get there as well. Uh, yes. But then, so I know, I'm I'm conscious of taking a lot of your time, um, and you have got better things to go and build <laughs> other than talk to me and build on this conversation. But the the last question we like to ask everyone is what's the the, the best? Uh, what what's your favorite quotes? Um, cool. by who and by who and why?
0: Uh, okay, it's actually a Bible verse. Uh, if, uh, if you don't mind me saying, uh, it's from Romans twelve. It says to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Yeah, because it actually teaches me the virtue of long suffering, <laughs> <laughs> which is very we all need a little bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it takes so long uh, to to develop projects in in data centers, as you know, from permitting to construction, it takes years. Yeah, uh, and this has taught me to be patient. You know, uh, take a long term view, maybe right? what everybody needs uh, in this industry. Yeah,
1: especially I mean, just on the regulation side, because so much stuff is not even regulated. Um, governments don't understand what this is. There's so much education that still needs to happen, uh, or has been happening um, around that. Just teaching people like this is why you need this, and this is why we should change that to make to allow for this to happen. Um, that, that alone, I'm sure, it's quite. Uh, I was gonna say. It's time consuming but also brain consuming <laughs> it's it's like a it's a constant battle <laughs> to show them the the, the business case
0: uh, it's a it's an exercise in patience uh where you yeah. <laughs> to, explain to, to many people uh, who have never been in a data center before so, to explain to mm. them how, how important it is to to invest in this early uh, because as you know, data centers are the bedrock of the digital economy you know, and, and it is the way of the future.
1: And then that's the thing. I mean, a few years ago, someone said, and I think this is completely true, is whatever humankind goes in this day and age, um, and it doesn't matter if it's Mars or beyond that, the first thing that's going to get built will be a data center because there'll be a need to process data somewhere, <laughs> wherever we go. And that's that's how important this all is. Uh, but Kok shai thank you so much for talking to me. It's always a pleasure. Um, to to get a perspective on Asia Um, and in this case actually hear more about your your life journey as well Um, and and I hope to see you in a few days in uh, in Jakarta
0: thank you thank you very much it's been a pleasure speaking to you and just exchanging views on, on the whole industry and I look forward to seeing you in Jakarta
1: soon and to our listeners thank you for tuning in and don't forget to review and share this episode and follow the great business minds podcast on all your favorite streaming and social media platforms you can find the links in the podcast description Thank you again to our sponsor, Preskill & Co., a leading award-winning City of London law firm, internationally recognized for its expertise in the digital infrastructure industry, as well as the telecoms and tech sector more broadly. Feel free to reach out to them at www.preskill.com. Do subscribe to the podcast and we invite you back again for the next episode of The Definitive Show for the Business of Digital Infrastructure, The Great Business Minds Podcast. See you then.